Hi, welcome back everyone. As you know, for the next six weeks, I'm traveling the world to find out the best ice cream flavor. Today, I'm here with Angela in the Jersey Shore um, <laughs> to find out the best ice cream flavor. Angela, nice to meet you. It's nice to meet you, Michael. Thank you. All right. Now, what flavor ice cream do you have here, here for me to taste? Well, I gotta tell you, Michael, my mother-in-law, Gloria, she lives in Florida. This is her favorite flavor of ice cream, all right? She takes a little dog for a walk in the park sometimes, and she tells me she loves it. It's cream cheese and lox bagel mm, flavored ice cream. Okay, you can only find it here. Okay, in the East Coast, you know, along the Jersey Shore. Shore. Yeah, yeah okay. it's a similar area. Mm, My husband, he loves it. He works in the Diamond District. He comes mm, home delicious. every day. He tells me, Angie, give me more of that bagel and lox cream cheese ice cream. And I said, all right. So, Michael, I got to Thank you so you much. Taste. I got to try this. Mmm, delicious. The Jersey Shore. Mmm. This is really good. Wow. Mmm. But not the best. I'm gonna have to travel. I keep on traveling to my destinations to find out the best flavor of ice cream in my next. All trip. right. Well, good luck. I'm so sorry. Journey. Thank you so good much, luck. Angela. Take Thank care. you so much. Take care of yourself. And tune in next week where I'll travel the world to find out the best ice cream flavor. Thank you so much. everyone good afternoon and welcome to the well here at SDSA glad that you're joining here us here today we are in the second week of a series called finding your flavor which is not necessarily about ice cream but of course any chance we get to introduce ice cream into a Sunday message we will take opportunity to do that what we're really talking about is not discovering ice cream flavors but discovering our spiritual flavors and that's why this 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 series is called finding your flavor and what we discovered last week is while there may be only one way to God, which is through our Lord Jesus Christ, there's only one way to God, there may be many ways to the way. And that's what we're discovering here in this series is what are the different ways to the way and what way best suits me or am I most naturally tuned into? Now, I know Susan asked before, but I wasn't really, couldn't see from where I was sitting over there. How many people have taken the flavor quiz? Raise your hand if how many people have taken. Okay, so that's a good number, okay? So how many people, when they took the flavor quiz, and they found out what their spiritual temperament is. How many people said, like, you know what? That makes sense. That fits. That's that that fits. Okay. How many people were surprised? They're surprised. Okay, some were surprised. Okay, how many people got uh, just since we're having some fun right here? How many people got like one of the the boring ones, like a uh, contemplative or ascetic? How many boring people are we have right here? Okay, not, too, not a few scared. How about how many fun ones? How many how many enthusiasts or senses? How many we got here? There, whoa, there we go. There you go. That's a true true enthusiast. Okay, right right on cue. How many people hate the raising your hands game at the bidding of the well? There you go. <laughs> but hey, I got to keep myself entertained. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, then do like Susan said. After we finish up this series, after we finish up this message today, and I stress on after the message, not during the message. After the message, go to stsa.church slash finding your flavor. Okay, and there you'll be able to take a little flavor quiz. It'll take you like three minutes. You'll answer a bunch, probably like 20 or 30 questions about what it is that your preferences are, and it'll tell you which of the nine spiritual temperaments, okay, that we are going through right here, which one is mo are you most naturally tuned into and is your flavor of spirituality? Because what we discovered last week, and we'll, we'll repeat this throughout this series, is that Christianity is not about a set of rules. Christianity is not about a one-size-fits-all. It's not a formula. It's not a set of rituals. Christianity is a relationship. It's a relationship with a person Okay, based on his life on this earth, he lived, he died, he rose from the dead, he is a person, and because he is alive, we can relate to him, and through him, we connect to God. So, if life is about, Christianity is about a relationship, there are no two relationships that look the same. If you are a parent, and you have multiple children, you know that you have a unique relationship with each one, and you wouldn't want him to act like her, or her to act like him to please you. You are most well-pleased when he is who he is, and she is who she is. And our Father in heaven is most well-pleased, not when we're trying to copy someone else's spiritual flavor and trying to put ourselves in someone else's shoes, but instead being who God made us to be. Because if God didn't want us to be unique, then he didn't have to make us unique. If God wanted uniformity, he could have programmed that in. But God created us as diverse as our thumbprints, each one of us got a unique thumbprint. And that you that uniqueness is from God. He could have done it another way, but it's because God likes different flavors. And God, we always talk about, like I said last week, the church is like one big ice cream cone with your chocolates and your vanillas and your strawberries and your butter pecans and your salted caramels. And can't we all just get along? Yes, that's what the church is supposed to be. It's all different flavors of ice cream all together worshiping the same God. 
So last week we introduced this idea and we said last week, for those who weren't here, that trying to say one type of spirituality is better than another is like saying like one flavor of ice cream is better than another. You and your experience, that is absolutely true. Like I said last week, I'm a chocolate guy. To me, I don't understand the crazy flavors like butter pecan. And I, last week I made a big deal about butter pecan and I had several people who were offended by my rant on butter pecan. I was saying how people who like butter pecan should be put in jail or something like that. I don't know what I said, okay? But I went on a little rant. Several people were offended. In my experience, you will never convince me that butter pecan is the way to go. You will never convince me. But by the same token, there's got to be people out there who are keeping the butter pecan industry in business. Okay, there's got to be people out there with that certain kind of taste. In the end, ice cream is ice cream. And in the end, ice cream, 90% of ice cream is the same. It's just a little sugar that makes the difference. And in the end, what we're eating is pretty much the same thing. The difference is how we experience it. I said the example last week of medicine. The important thing is the medicine. But the medicine may be flavored grape, maybe flavored strawberry, maybe flavored bubblegum. My kid will take bubblegum and she will not take any other flavor. For her, it's completely different things. I want to say it's the exact same thing. It's just a little bit of sugar on top that made a little bit of a difference. And that's the way it is with spirituality. Is We need to pray. We need to serve. We need to love one another. But the way, the flavor that maybe best suits you, that's what we're here talking about. But in the end, in the end, we're talking about different ways to express the same thing in our relationship with God. Now, what we're going to do throughout this series for the, the coming uh, five weeks or four weeks or whatever we got, four weeks, five weeks, okay? Each week, we're going to look at two types of spiritual flavors and talk about those two types. So there was a list of nine. I went through them quickly last week, and if you took the, the test, you saw the list of nine. We're going to talk about two each week, and with each one, we're going to kind of see where does it come from, what does it mean, like what's kind of the basis for this spiritual temperament, what did, can we learn from it, and what are the dangers for those who are the spiritual flavor, because every flavor comes with inherent dangers. Now, today we're going to talk about naturalists and sensates. Before I get into it, there will be a temptation, if you are neither of these two, to say, you know what, turn off today. I'm not a naturalist, I'm not a sensate, I don't know what those means, I think those people are crazy. My way is the best way, I'm not listening to any of those other stuff. Let me tell you two reasons why you shouldn't do it. Number one, you may discover something about yourself that you never knew. You may discover something about yourself that you never knew. You may have been taught your whole life that spirituality is a certain way and you didn't even know there was other options. You didn't know that you could actually go outside and pray that you didn't have to pray inside a room. You didn't know that was an option. So there may be some things that you never discovered. In my life group this past week, we were talking about all of the different personalities and some people in the group were sharing about how, you know what, I'm thankful that someone made me try a certain way because a certain way when I first tried it, I didn't like it and actually I hated it, but I grew and now it's my favorite thing in the whole wide world. We were talking about like the Egbeya. Okay, like the, the book of hours, the set of structured prayers. When someone first introduced me, I hate it. I said, that's not my style. And that'll be a temptation for us to say, that's not my style. But some things are an acquired taste. And maybe you can change your style or maybe you can add. Because what I want to say, the second reason why this is important to you is someone else told me something very wise last week. Someone came to me afterward and said, when I was presented these nine, and said, I hope you tell people the following. And he told me to say this, that it's always good to diversify your portfolio. Why? Because let's say you say, I'm a sensate, and I worship God through my senses. But what happens if you go blind? It could happen, right? You could go blind. You say, I worship God through reading. What happens if you have a disease? You can't read. You get a concussion. You can't read. You say, I'm an ascetic. Quiet. What happens if you have children? <laughs> like, life happens. Life happens, and your best bet is not to pigeonhole yourself and to say, this is the only way that I know how to worship God, because what if that way is taken away? In every other area, we need to diversify our portfolio, and spiritually, the same is true. We need to learn how to experience God in multitude of ways, and yeah, you may still have kind of your bread and butter kind of a way, but we need to diversify our portfolio and realize that our God is a big God, and we can experience Him other than the limited ways that we have come to know. All right? So with that said, we're going to jump in right now. We're going to start talking about the first one. And we're talking about naturalists. All right. We're talking about, how, remind me again, how many people are naturalists? How many people are naturalists? Okay, so that's a good number. Okay, naturalists, y'all get me on this one. I want to tell you two stories. Naturalists will relate. Other people who are not naturalists will not relate, but you'll have to listen to me anyway. First, we go back to July 2009. July 2009. I was doing a retreat. I was speaking at a retreat for a church in Calgary. All right. And we were at a resort called Banff. B-A-N, then many Fs, okay, Banff, 
And it was on a lake called Lake Louise. Anyone from that area? The Northwest, okay, Canada area? Okay, no one's from there. Oh, some, one person's there, okay. So you can, you, can, you can validate what I'm about to say. It is the most beautiful place on the planet. i never seen a place like this. What I have right here is a picture that I pulled from the internet, but I went through and I looked at 100 pictures and I tried to recreate the picture that I saw one July morning when I was up in Banff, okay, by Lake Louise. I went out early one morning to do my quiet time, okay? And the sights, like if you've never seen the mountains on the west, they're not like the mountains on the east coast. They're gigantic, gigantic. And I'm sitting out there by this lake. And just like this, you're sitting by a lake, and there's a mountain. That mountain is approximately one bazillion feet high. It goes so high, and it's glorious, and it's huge. And I'm just sitting there looking, and I am just frozen in time. The mountain, the ice cap, the lake is like a mirror. The weather is absolutely perfect. But it wasn't just the scene, the picture cards, the postcard scene. While I was there, somehow God brought in front of me a specific verse. And you may have heard me speak about this verse because I speak about it a lot. Now you know where it came from. It was Psalm 125, verse 1. Anyone know what Psalm 125, verse 1 says? It says, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken but endures forever. Remember that verse, those who trust in the Lord like Mount Zion. I'm staring at this gigantic mountain. I started to think to myself, if a car ran into that mountain, what would happen? What would happen in the mountain? Nothing. If the car was going 100 miles an hour, ran into that mountain, nothing would happen. I mean, nothing would happen to the mountain. The car would be in trouble. What if a bus ran into that mountain? What would happen? What if an airplane ran into that mountain? What if a tank ran into that mountain? What if an army of 20 30, 40 tanks ran to that mountain. What happened to that mountain? Nothing. And I said, God, I want to be like that mountain. Because those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. I said, God, I want to be like that mountain. And that memory is etched in my mind forever. That that's what it means to trust in God. That's what it means to trust in God. That sickness, that jobs, that layoffs, that it, whatever. Mountain. That's story number one. Story number two goes back to 2007. This is now the month of May in 2007. I remember it very vividly. We were in Sarasota, Florida, my wife and I on our vacation. And I remember the specific year and the month because that was, I remember going into that trip a little bit in a negative mood. Okay, and the reason why is because that was the year that LeBron James and Cleveland Cavaliers beat the Washington Wizards in game six, okay, where LeBron traveled at the end. And everyone could see it was a travel. Okay, it was a very clear travel, a nation of one. And I remember going in very angry that the Cavs beat my Wizards. They should not have beat them. And I went in so angry that I went on this vacation, NBA playoffs, and said, I will not watch the next round. I will not watch LeBron James and, 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 and play when he shouldn't be playing because the Wizards should have won that game. I also remember because that was the first year my kid was born. So, I mean, <laughs> both of those two events were major life events. Okay. Anyway, whether, whatever it was, okay, we're here on this vacation, and I remember, again, going in. For, I was joking about the LeBron, sort of, okay? I went in there, and I wasn't feeling good about who I was. I wasn't feeling good about who I was. I was feeling yucky. I was feeling spiritually dirty, like yucky, like I'm a failure. I failed God. I failed myself. Like I'm just, I'm not as good as people think I am. I remember feeling vividly that way. And because I wasn't watching basketball at night, I woke up early in the morning, one morning, and I went out there, and I took a walk on the beach. Love the early morning walk on the beach. If you love, if you're a naturalist, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Early morning on the beach, there's nothing like that. And I'm walking out there. And I'm feeling yucky, and I'm feeling yucky, and I'm walking out there. And there's something about the ocean, okay? The ocean is as close as you can get to infinity. Like, the ocean is infinite. And you just keep looking, 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 and you keep looking, you try to find the end. Where does the sky start? And, the, like, I love that. And I remember thinking to myself, God, I'm yucky. What can you do with a yucky guy like me? And I felt God tell me, how much dirt do you think it would take to make the ocean dirty? How much dirt? Like, you're yucky. How much yucky do you put in the ocean? Then the ocean becomes yucky, and it cannot be cleaned. What's the answer to that question? If I pour in a bucket of yucky in the ocean right here on the East Coast, what's going to happen in the Pacific Ocean on the West Coast? Nothing. If I pour in two buckets of yucky, six buckets of yucky, 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 yucky. Yeah, that spot may be a little yucky for the moment. What's going to happen if I come back in a week? Is that spot still going to be yucky? And I felt God tell me that. So there's no yucky that you could put in to me that I can't wash. 
There's no yucky that you can put in to me. Like the ocean is big, I'm bigger. You are dirty, the dirt is dirtier. And there's no yucky you can't put into me that I can't wash. Those two experiences with me are etched in my mind forever. And it's not just a picturesque, it's a spiritual experience. If you're a naturalist, you understand exactly what I'm talking about. That there are certain things in nature which you have discovered that while it's nice to pray in a room, it's nice to go to a church and worship together, you have discovered that the greatest cathedral exists with no walls and no ceiling. And the greatest place of worship may be outside in the open air in God's cathedral, which is nature. If you're not a naturalist, what I said just sounds very weird to you, okay? And it sounds very, you know what I mean, like, you know, tree hugger, kumbaya, can't we all just kind of get, it sounds like that. But let me show you that being a naturalist has a lot of biblical basis. You know who was a naturalist in the Bible? A very strong naturalist, clearly by his words that he wrote? King David, okay? We'll look at a few Psalms right here. Psalm 36, verse 5 and 6. Look how nature for him is not a picture, it's not a postcard, but is a spiritual experience for him. Your mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Your righteousness, like a great mountain, your judgments are a great deep. David could look at the ocean, look at a mountain, look at the clouds, look up at the sky, and he could connect with God through that. That's what a naturalist means. Psalm 104, verse 24. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. This great and wide scene, which are innumerable teeming things, living things, both small and great. And one last one, Psalm 8, 3 and 4. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? I don't think King David wrote these words as like a meditation while sitting in his room saying, yeah, the clouds are coming. I don't think he was like that. I don't think he took a virtual tour of, of what the, the sea looks like. I think King David saw the ocean and he said, man, Lord, that's deep, but your mercies are deeper. He saw him out. He said, that's high. The Lord, your justice is higher. I think King David looked up at the stars and the bazillion stars in the sun and said, man, if God can take care of those things and create them, who am I? How can I? Like it was a spiritual experience for him more than just a picturesque experience. There's one time I read, I, was, I read a quote as I was preparing for this that some one author wrote, in his opinion, the Bible cannot be properly understood while read indoors. And he started to talk about all the different passages in Scripture that talk about nature. Okay, and there's one particular one that I remember in Genesis chapter 15 where God was talking to Abraham. And God wanted to tell Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to give you lots of children. And God could have told him that way. Abraham, you're going to have lots of children. And Abraham would have said, okay, that's nice. But God wanted to really etch this in his mind. So God took Abraham on a little field trip. Genesis 15 verse 5. Then he, being God, God brought him outside. Okay, that means that when this story started, God is telling me you're going to have many children. Abraham was probably inside his tent. And God said, you're not going to get this in the tent. Come outside with me. And said, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And I think that Abraham, as an obedient person, probably started to do that. One, two, three. Wait, did I count? One, two. And Abraham, and God is probably up there chuckling in the corner. Like, okay, go ahead, Abraham. Tell me when you're done. And then Abraham finally got it and said, God, I don't think I can do that. And God said, so shall your descendants be. And Abraham said, gotcha. Gotcha. I could have said you're going to have lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of descendants. And that may have lasted for a little bit. But when Abraham got out there and he started counting. After that, it says, he believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. <clears throat> Some of the great saints in the church history. Anyone ever heard of great St. Francis of Assisi? Okay, he's a Catholic saint from the Catholic church, but he was... Very much a naturalist, okay? And he wrote a famous uh, poem, okay, which he called The Canticle to Brother Son, okay? He wrote A Canticle to Brother Son. I'll give you an excerpt right here because I think it's nice. He said, be praised, my Lord. If you're not a naturalist, this sounds crazy to you, but I just want to show you how some people can connect with God through nature because some of you connect. I praise you, my Lord, through your creatures, especially my Lord, Brother Son, who brings the day. You give light through him, and he is beautiful and radiant in his splendor. Of you, most high, he bears likeness. Praise be to you, my Lord, through sister moon and her stars. In heaven you form them clear and precious and beautiful. Praise be to you, Lord, through brother wind, through air, cloudy, serene, every kind of weather through which you give sustenance to your creatures. And he goes on and on and on. He talks about sister water and brother fire and maybe Uncle Earthquake might be somewhere in the back or something like that. You say, this is weird. Like, he's like, 
connecting to God through all these things? Like, isn't this weird? Well, no. Our Coptic tradition has always connected God through nature. Okay, we have something in the church tradition called the midnight praises. And every night, before, anytime before this liturgy, there should be a service of the midnight praises. And one of the canticles, the third canticle, is all about nature and praising God through nature, which says, bless the Lord, O fire and heat. Praise him and exalt him forever. Bless the Lord, you do and winds. You light and darkness, mountains on all hills. All that springs upon the earth. You say, this is weird. Are we talking to created things? Like, are we worshiping and praying to created things? No, we're not worshiping created things. What we are doing is using those created things to worship the one who created them. And to say the one who created this majesty must be majestic. The one who created this multitude must be infinite. The one who created all this beauty and splendor must be a beautiful and splendorous God. We're using the creation to glorify the creator, not the other way around. St. Anthony, my namesake, was one asked, once asked. St. Anthony was, was, was the first monk and he lived out in the wilderness like a, like a hermit. And he was once asked, how do you content yourself without spiritual books? This was an intellectual who was asking this question. How are you connecting with God, but you don't have books? Like you, like you don't have a library like we do in the city. You live out in the desert and you don't have any kind of books. And St. Anthony follow, responded and said the following. He said, my book, O philosopher, speaking to him, my book is the nature of created things. And as often as I have a mind to read the words of God, it is out of my hand. St. Anthony said, you have books. I have an infinite library to learn about God which is the nature in which he lived. So you say, I am not a naturalist. And I say to you, if you ever hit a point, this is what I do. Like naturalist is not my top one, but it is one of my top ones. The way I am, I, I don't go outside every day and read my Bible. I don't take walks every day. I don't do all that stuff. But I'll tell you what I do and I would advise you as well. If you ever hit a wall, if you find yourself stagnant, this is what I do. Sometimes I find myself stagnant, like my Bible isn't speaking to me. My prayer is just bouncing off the ceiling, coming down. Especially during times like this where the weather is perfect, go outside. You might get a turbo boost, an injection for your spiritual life that you didn't know before. Go outside, and that's actually going to be our homework for this week, is to go outside just for 15, 20 minutes. Take a walk and spend that walk praying to God. Take your Bible and go sit on a park bench. I'm not saying like it's not, for me at least it's not practical every single day but it may be a spiritual boost that you need to get past that wall that's, that you've stagnated on. How does being a, a naturalist help us out? Well, two lessons that we're going to learn from the naturalist, and we'll go through these quickly for the sake of time. All right, you can delve more into these. Nature. Okay, what does nature do for me? What can I learn from naturalists? How can we all experience what they experience? Nature teaches me, number one, to see the bigness and smallness of God. And I know bigness and smallness are not words, but they make my point, okay? The bigness and smallness of God. Bigness how? Because I see a big mountain and I see a deep ocean and I look up and I, and I, and I look around and I see billions of people on this planet and billions before and billions yet to come. And I see the stars and I know that not just what I see is not even a, a fraction Okay, what really exists and galaxies and light years away and billions and billions and the sand on the sea and billions and billions. I say, man, God is so big. But then I also see God is so small because God doesn't talk about billions of people. God talks about one person. God actually doesn't even talk about one person sometimes. He talks about not all of creation. He says one sparrow. And the value of one sparrow, sparrow would be the most worthless and, and cheap uh, bird when Jesus was around. He said, one sparrow doesn't fall unless I know about it. He said, one lily, lily, a little, a little, uh, the, the, the flower lily, one little lily. I take care of that little lily. Gentlemen, some of us can relate to you. One hair from your head. For some of us, that number is scarce. Okay. One little hair from your head doesn't fall without your big, big, big God knowing about the small, small, small things in your life. It's beautiful. It's beautiful to see that the same God who controls the galaxies, the planets, the solar systems, the whatever, that holds, that counts the stars, also holds my life in his hands. There's one psalm where King David said it perfectly, and he put the perfect juxtaposition here for us. Look what he said, Psalm 147, verse 3 and 4. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. And then without flinching, he goes into this next thought. 
He counts the number of stars and calls them all by name. Wow! See the bigness and the smallness of God? Big. Counts the number of stars. Like you look at the number of stars and God gives them all a name. Like even just the fact that he could think of that many names. That's the bigness of our God. But he's also small. You got a little cut on your hand? I take care of that little cut. God, you take care of galaxies and boo-boos? Yes. That's the bigness and smallness of God. And that's true in my life too. You got big problems, God take care of you. You got small problems that no one cares about, God cares about because he's big and he's small. Second thing we learn from God is the majesty and the multitude of God. The majesty and the multitude of God. We see the bigness and smallness. We see the majesty and the multitude. Majesty meaning the beauty, the splendor, the sunset, the sunrise, the picture that I drew for you about the, uh, the, the, the mountain and, and the lake. And you see the beauty of God's creation. But then the multitude meaning it ain't just one, it ain't just two, it ain't just three. I love what King David says. I didn't put it up on the screen. King David says in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. And then he says, day after day, they pour forth speech, night after night, they display knowledge. It's not the beauty of a sunrise that makes God just majestic, but it's that sunrise come up every single day. And every single day that sun come up. And every single day that sun go down. And every single time you see the beauty of the ocean, and then next day you come and see the same beauty, and the same beauty, and the same beauty. We see the majesty of God, the multitude of God through his nature. Those are the pluses of being of a naturalist. Is there any pitfalls? Yes, there's pitfalls, there's dangers. If you're a naturalist, the, the danger, the temptation to be wary of is individualism. Individualism, meaning I got this thing figured out. I got it on my own. I don't need anybody else. Y'all stay with your stinking Bible studies. I'm going to go on a walk and I'm going to get a message from God and don't nobody tell me nothing because I got this thing all figured out. That's a danger. And that's something we got to be on guard for, is that we got it all figured out and we kind of retreat. Like Jesus would retreat up onto a, a mountain, right? Like Jesus would oftentimes go on top of a mountain and he would pray to his father. But he never stayed on that mountain forever. He came back down that mountain. And some of us spiritually stay on the mountain forever. And we think we got it all figured out and we don't need anybody else. We figure out my relationship with God. And then we come down to hear a sermon. Y'all don't have it figured out. Y'all don't understand because I connect with God on my own. And that's a danger that we got to be wary of. Even the monks... Like even the monks, sometimes we say, but the monks, the monks themselves retreat and spend all kinds of alone time. But even the monks themselves come back in community. So the idea of being alone with God in nature, good, but not to the detriment of being together in community in the body of Christ. So if you're a naturalist, you be on guard because I promise you this, I promise you this. If you are using your naturalism to put yourself in isolation from one another, I guarantee you, the person who will help you the most to connect with God in nature will be the devil himself. He would love to get you to connect with God every single day and feel like you're great as long as he isolates you from the body of Christ and that's a pitfall that we won't fall into. That's naturalist. Did I convert anyone into being a naturalist? Anyone get excited about naturalism? You're going to have a homework assignment where you're going to get to practice it. But now we're going to shift to sensates and I'm going to confess to you right up front. Sensates are people who were... Naturalists worship God through nature. I got, I understand that one. Sensate worship through, worship through senses. This is not me at all. I got nothing on this. Like this is very easy to say. There's probably a way that you can worship God with your senses and good luck and do your best. So what I did for this one is I recruited somebody to help me speak about what does it mean to be a sensate. So give some attention right here to a friend who's gonna appear on the video screen in a minute. Hey everyone, my name is Michael and my flavor is being a sensei. So what that means is that I connect to God best through my senses, either through visuals, through pictures, through icons, through scents, and definitely through music. That is for sure the best way that I connect with God is through music. There's always certain hymns or, or certain worship songs that really connect me and really uh, allow me to feel the presence of God around me. And when I, when I look at the past, there's always certain uh, hymns like, that I can listen to that always remind me of where I was with God years ago and, and remind me of, 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 reminds me of how I experienced God through those hard times and remind me of where He is in my life. Uh, so definitely music. Uh, I, there's nothing I love more than blasting certain songs or certain hymns in the car and really getting into the presence of God 
Usually at that time, my wife just looks at me uh, as if she has no idea who I am. Uh, but that's definitely how I feel the presence of God. So my favorite flavor is definitely being a sensei, which is how I feel the presence of God and experience him through my senses, especially music. Big hand for Michael, big hand for Michael. Not with us, but always with us, okay? <laughs> so Michael, for those of you, as you just heard right there, he's a natural sensate. He and I would always discuss these kinds of things. The very things that bring him closer to God, for me, are often a distraction from God. Okay, and this is the, this is the problem if you, are a, if you are a sensate living with non-sensates. Okay, they will try to shut you down as things that you enjoy, they'll say, that's a distraction. And no, don't put that stuff around. And this is through your senses. This could be sight, smell, touch, music, like sound, whatever it may be. I remember when, when, when we first started the church, okay, we used to play the liturgy up here and we didn't have icons in the front, okay? And then eventually we got icons. Actually, Michael was the one who made, like, pursued the followed up on. I kept like, hey, what's the big deal about icons? Because for me, like, my eyes are closed anyway. So like, why do you need icons? You know what I mean? Just close your eyes and be spiritual like me. You don't need icons. Like, save some money too. So wh why? Michael liked the icons. Eventually we got icons. And I remember after we got them, he came and he said, you know, church was like powerful today. Liturgy was powerful today. You know, it was like something different. And I was thinking, yeah, the sermon was really like, you know what I mean? Like, I'm sure it was. But he wasn't talking about the sermon. <laughs> He's talking about the icons. And it brought for him something that I'll be honest with you. Sometimes, you know, the icon could be upside down and I wouldn't even notice it, okay? Because for me, put me in a room with, with just blank walls and that's the way I pray the best. But a sensate is the opposite. So maybe some people here, okay, the way I experience God through nature, some people here experience God through art, through music, through beautiful pictures, the beautiful sounds, the beautiful smells, the people who like to light the candles all around and, and this scent versus this scent, to me, it's a fire hazard either way, so I don't really understand the benefit, but you know what I mean? Like that does it for you, you know? If you grew up the way most of us grew up, sensory experiences were deemed as distraction from truly worshiping God. You worship God in quiet, in silence, shh. But I want you to know that the people who actually in the Bible had direct contact with God, maybe not direct contact, but at least had visions of God. Oftentimes their experience was quite sensory. And I'm going to the book of Revelation right now, Revelation chapter one, when John had a vision of heaven. And look when John had a vision of heaven. It wasn't the vision that we see on the, on the postcards, the little picture of Jesus with the cross in his hand, you know what I mean, like blessing. Look what he says. I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw, the kind how many times you see visual or, or sensory words. Having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, his eyes like a flame of fire, his feet like fine brass as if refined in a furnace, and his voice is the sound of many waters. See how descriptive he is. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. He could have just said, God was very pretty. He could have just said, he looked nice. But see how vivid the imagery is right here? I remember one time me and my wife, we were in, uh, in, in New York we were for our 10-year anniversary, and, and someone got us a hotel room in Times Square, like right in the middle. Times Square, and we was there, it was there like on Memorial Day weekend, so it was Sunday night into Monday. And we said, we're gonna do something crazy like them young people do. We're gonna go outside, okay? It was like 11, 15 at night or something like that. So we said, we're gonna venture out into the world around us with the crazy. And I remember I was out there and she's trying to talk to me. I can't, like it's sensory overload. It's like, it's just too much. There's too many light things flashing. I'm like, what is that guy doing? Why is this guy here? And what, what? Like, it's just too much for me. There's too much sensory overload. But I got news for you, that when John explained what it was like in heaven, it looked more like Times Square than it did like my quiet time room, okay, which is just plain and, and blank walls. It looked a lot more like that with sensory stuff all around. It wasn't just John, okay? Ezekiel had a vision and saw very similar. Isaiah had a vision and saw very similar. A lot of vivid things going on. Anyone who saw God was overwhelmed by the majesty and the beauty and the splendor of God, the different sights and sounds. So I am not a sensate, all right? You may be a sensate. What can we non-sensates learn from the sensates? All right, we 
have been instructed by our Lord to worship Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. That also includes our senses. Okay, and that means all of our senses should be used to worship God. Okay, sensates, y'all get this? Non, let's go through this together. How can we worship God through our sight? I talked earlier about icons, and that's certainly one way, but it's even more than icons. Like, I want to say many people throughout history have worshipped God with the beauty of art. You can't get very far in the list of amazing pieces of art without seeing that several of them were done as an act of worship to God. I say famous statues. What's the most famous statue there is? David. Michelangelo did that David one. A lot of Michelangelo's stuff was, 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 was Christian in its tone and, and biblical. I say to you, famous paintings. You can't go very far in famous paintings without going to Da Vinci's Last Supper. You can't go far in, in, in famous architecture without going to the Sistine Chapel and all that is. So what I'm saying is that many of the works of art that, that people are inspired by were done originally as, as act of worship, okay? Or at least to express them their relationship with God. And this is a biblical idea. If you go back to the very first time in the Old Testament where we read about the Holy Spirit coming upon man, the first time we read about Holy Spirit coming upon a man, it says in Exodus 35. See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God and wisdom and understanding and knowledge and all manner of workmanship. Okay, why did he receive the Spirit of God? To design artistic works, to work in gold and silver and bronze and cutting jewels and for setting and carving wood and to work in all manner of artistic workmanship. You could not see the house that God built without being overwhelmed visually, whether it was the tabernacle or the temple, the colors, the sizes, the splendor, the gold, the majesty. It's visually very, very appealing. And I got news for you. You may not believe that you are affected by your sight, but you are. Even things as simple as the lights. Even things as simple as the lights. The lights go down, you have a certain spirit. Lights go up, you like to, even every Sunday, okay, there's one person in this church, every Sunday I come in, Okay, I turn on the lights, and I like the lights a certain way. And I turn it on very dim, and then I push up two times. Okay, I push the number two, which is a dim setting, and then plus, plus. Okay, I have a very specific way. And every time I do that, I push the number two, it starts off dim, and the same person goes, enough, enough, enough. Okay, and I push up, up every time. And every time she's, like, surprised, like, I'm, I'm pushing it up. Okay, because for her, like, the lighting, like, the lighting makes a difference for us. And that's how we worship God, through our sight. How about sound? Sound, Psalm 150, verse 3 through 5. We recite this, we chant this every time we celebrate the, the divine liturgy. We say, praise him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise him with the lute and harp. Praise him with timbrel and dance. Praise him with stringed instruments and flutes. Praise him with loud cymbals. Praise him with clashing cymbals. Okay, now if you're an aesthetic or contemplative, you'd go to King David and say, shh, all that we can't praise God with all that noise going on. He says, no, no, no. The noise isn't the distraction to praising. The noise is the praising. And we should praise God with song. Michael said it best. Some people really connect with God deep in their soul through music. And even if you're not naturally a sensate, you kind of understand this. Like Michael said about how sometimes he's driving down the street and he got the, the windows down and the music blaring. We've all kind of been there. Rarely will you find someone driving down on a Sunday afternoon, windows down, blasting a sermon. Yeah. Mm, like, yeah, make that point, Father Anthony. Boom, hit him again. <laughs> because the sermon may connect with us here, but the music is the language of the soul. So it is really difficult to worship God here through just audiobooks and just sermons. And in fact, to be honest, if we're all going to be honest with this one, is the times you probably experience God the most powerful Okay, the times you experience God the most powerful is usually going to be in a group context with some type of music going on. Whether it's singing a song at a retreat together, in a prayer meeting, or whether it is during a Holy Week, when the Holy Week psalm is being chanted and there's a special melody and a special tune, that psalm hits us in a deep place that no words can reach. There's something powerful about music. One of the things that I do, okay, just so you know, Okay, there's, there's studies done that say that when you read something, it engages a certain part of your brain. When you hear something, it engages a different part of your brain. So one of the things that I do when I have time, I don't say I do this often, but when I, have, when I have time and I'm not in a rush and I want to really get into my Bible, 
I will read my Bible, and at the same time, I have the thing where it can read it to me. So some people listen, that's good. Some people read, that's good. I like to, when I really want to get it, read and listen simultaneously, and it'll affect two parts of your brain, and it will really sink it deep in there. This is why, by the way, everything we do in the Orthodox Church and our liturgical service is sung. We sing everything, including the readings. The readings are meant to be sung in a long, beautiful tune, but it's very long, okay? But they're meant to be sung. Why? Because that engages a different part of you than just an intellectual, okay? That's how you worship God through sound. Smell. Can we worship God through smell? Yes. Malachi chapter 1, verse 11 says, In every place, in every place, incense shall be offered to my name. No doubt. You can't read much of the Bible without seeing that there's a connection between worship and incense, worship and incense, worship and incense. In the Old Testament, we see it. Book of Revelation talks about the kingdom of heaven. Like we see it very clearly that incense and worship are connected together. Why is incense connected with worship? Because God likes the smell? Because God likes certain kinds of smells in heaven? It's not about God. God is spirit. God is not senses. We are senses. The senses are not for him, but it's for us. It's not because he likes the smell. But it's because he knows that we as human beings connect experiences with smell, especially if you have a strong sense of smell. One time, I love my wife dearly. She's the best person in the whole wide world. She one time made this Brussels sprout thing. I actually like the taste, but man, the smell, the house stunk for days. And ever since then, someone says Brussels sprout, and like I got it, like I'm tainted by it. I like the taste of it. She puts these little raisins, little syrup stuff. Like, it's very nice. Okay, honey or whatever it may be. The taste is good. But once I smell it, I can't. Because the smell, I can't. We associate things with smell. And that's why when God gives us incense, you know, studies say, again, just like I said with the sound, that your brain, there are parts of your brain that are awoken, awakened through strong smells. That's why when someone passes out, in a football game, they get knocked out with a concussion or something like that. What do they often do to revive them? Smelling salt. Okay, the because smell is more than just aroma and beautiful. It has a connection to us. So my point here, okay, or the smell of coffee, okay, the smell of Starbucks. You smell that smell, and it does something for you. Okay, my point is, as I said, Starbucks people, yeah, people, yeah, like people weren't paying attention the entire talk. Just woke up right now. Okay, it's a Starbucks smell. My point is, the senses are not for God, but for us to connect to God. God doesn't need the sensory stuff. It's for us, visually, audibly, uh, smell, whatever that is, okay? Touch as well. I didn't talk about touch, but everything, if you are a touch person, you love the Orthodox Church. We make the sign of the cross. We do prostrations. We kiss one another, okay, with a kiss of peace. We kiss icons. We kiss anything we can get our hands on, okay? If you like kissing, this is the place to be, all right? Why? Not because we're kissing a piece of wood. Not because we think that, that God is in the wood. But, you know, if you have, like, if you're far away from your children, okay, you're far away from your children, and you see a picture of them, you may hug that picture of your children. You may even kiss the picture of your children. You're not dumb enough to think that you're kissing your child when you kiss the picture. Like, you're not an idiot. But that picture helps you connect to your child because you are a flesh and blood. And God, because we are flesh and blood, came down and took flesh and blood to communicate to flesh and blood. He came because we are touchable. He became touchable. Because we are auditory, he became auditory. Because we are visual, he became visual. Because he wants to relate to us, not for his own sake. Now, the temptation of a sensei. Right? Don't throw stuff at me, right? Don't throw stuff at me. If you are a strong, okay, sensate, be careful. I'm about to say, I'm saying this out of love. I'm not saying this in judgment. I'm saying this out of love. The danger is to replace emotions or substitute emotions for commitment. That's the danger. Emotions in our worship is good or bad? It's good. One should, one should worship God with all heart, soul, mind, and strength. It is absolutely good. Some people are anti-emotion, shouldn't have anything to do with emotions. I disagree. If God gave me emotions, I have to give everything I have to God. So if God gave me emotions, they have to go to God. I'm not saying emotions are bad. I'm saying our emotions are bad if that's all you have and that's what you rely on. Think of emotions this way. Emotions are like glass windows on a house. Glass windows are beautiful on the third floor, but they do not make a good foundation. If you're going to build a house, you will not put glass 
in the foundation that's under the ground because your house will collapse. Same thing is true when it comes to emotions. You need a stronger foundation. I told y'all, a couple weeks ago I was at a conference in Atlanta. Okay, it was a conference for pastors and it was about all kinds of different stuff. And I told y'all about when the band started up, man, like the old fogey inside me, I, turn it down. And I, like, that was me. Okay, like it was so loud and the lights and my, that was me. But it wasn't just that it was overwhelming to my senses. I started to think to myself, okay, and again, please, I'm not, don't, no one take this personal. I'm not saying this about anything or anyone, all of us. We were singing some of the most beautiful words I've ever heard in my life. But did we mean any of it? Like, I started to think to myself, if these words that we just sang are true, like we are heroes of the faith, we need nothing, God. You are more than enough for us. We will bless your name no matter what it may be. In the trials and tribulations, we will bless your name. We will proclaim your name to the ends of the earth. I want to stand up and say, are we just saying that? Because none of us do it. Because we go outside these walls and we don't proclaim his name. We shy away from his name all the time. But we just sing it. So I guess my fear is that we disconnect our words from our deeds. If we sing it and we do it, that's the best. But are we content just to say, God, you are more than enough? Then we walk out of here and he's not more than enough because we cry when we don't get everything else that we want? That we say that we run to you, but we don't actually run to him? Is singing about it enough to replace actually doing it? And that's the question that you have to ask yourself if you're a sensei. That yes, you connect with God through these words, but am I really connecting with God through the words or is it just the words? You know a group of people who Jesus spoke about who, who had a lot of nice words but didn't actually connect? Matthew 15, verse 8. These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me and in vain they worship me. I'm not judging the people who are singing those songs. I'm not judging them. I'm not in, in the least way. I'm saying I don't know. I don't know their heart. But my fear is that we were a group, we were probably, probably 30,000, no, 30, 3,000 people, okay, who it was inside that auditorium. We're all singing this stuff. Do we mean it? Or is it okay? Here's my question. Is it okay to sing it and not mean it? That's my question that I pose to you. Married people, if I go to my wife and I say, sweetheart, I will do anything for you. I will cross the deepest ocean. I will climb the highest mountain. I will, I will do anything to save you and to help you. I'll do the laundry. I will do the dishes. I will do the whatever. And I sing a beautiful song. And she says, okay, I need help with the dishes. And I say, I didn't actually mean it. They're just a song. Don't you get it? Like I was just singing a song. It doesn't work in marriage. It doesn't work in our relationship with God either. And I guess that's my fear. And sometimes people say, there's that verse where Jesus said, be careful of vain repetition, vain repetition, vain repetition. That to me is vain repetition. Vain repetition is when we say that I will cross the highest mountain and climb the highest sea or whatever. I, I probably mixed that one up. We say all these beautiful words, but then we walk out of here and our life is the same. That's what we gotta be careful. Am I saying don't sing? No. Am I saying don't say those? I'm not saying, I'm saying connect. Don't think that singing alone is enough. And this goes to all the senses, okay? The beautiful artwork. If it's just the beauty of the artwork and it's not the God behind them, then what's that? The, the, the rituals and the touching and the, and the cross and the kissing and all that stuff. If it's just the act itself and nothing deeper, that's when we get ourselves into trouble. Okay? That's a naturalist and a sensei. Okay? Maybe some of you came in saying, I don't know if I'm any of these. Maybe you got motivated to give it a try. If that's you, you have two homework assignments. You have two homework assignments. Every week we're going to have homework assignments. And we're going to talk about these in the life group. Okay? For those who are joining us in life groups. Your homework assignment is listed in detail on the back of your handout, okay? So you see it in this yellow area right here. And with each week, we're going to have a challenge, one that relates to each of the temperaments that we discussed. So for the naturalist, your homework assignment, well, this is for all of us, but to see what the naturalist does, we're going to go outside for a 20 to 30 minute period, okay? The weather is beautiful this week. God gave us a beautiful week. I think it's just because of this. Honestly, because you can't ask for better weather than this. We're going to go outside, and we're going to take our Bible. And the same way we read the Bible inside, we're going to do it outside. We're going to go out on our deck. We're going to go out on our front porch. We're going to go to a park. We're going to go anywhere. Okay, if you live by a body of water, bodies of water are the most inspirational. I don't know why, but something about water. We're going to go outside, and we're going to spend that time. You say, I hated it. I say, okay, it was only 20 minutes. 
it's not a big deal. Like if it's not you, you give it a try. You may discover something else. The second thing we're going to do, the sensates will like this. We're going to dedicate a period of 15 to 20 minutes to listening to Christian music or church hymns. Whatever floats your boat. Like something where you're not intellectually engaging only, but you are engaging at a hopefully a soul or a spirit level. It could be church hymns that you get into. It could be Christian radio. Okay, it could be listening to my beautiful voice all day long. Like I can record something for you if you want. Like whatever it may be. Whatever inspires you, we're going to try it. And again, if you hate it, you hate it. But you never know. You may connect with God in a new way. You may gain an appreciation for someone around you who connects with God through that way. But the goal of everything we do is to realize there is one way to God, but there are many ways to that one way. And we'll spend the rest of this time diversifying our portfolio so we can discover more ways, more flavors, more ways to the one way. Let's stand together and say a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for the uniqueness and the diversity that you created in all of us. Lord, as we look around this world, we see there's not two people that are the same, and we know there's not two people who will connect with you in the same way. Help us, Lord, to grow deeper in our relationship with you and to discover new ways to know you and new characteristics that we never knew about you. Help us to deepen our understanding and our intimacy with you throughout this series. Whatever way it may be, Lord, help us to go deeper and never to be satisfied with like the emotional level, the surface level, just the beauty of nature, but always to see you as the creator behind all of the creation, be it natural or sensory, whatever it may be, Lord, help us to see you behind it all. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, the prayers of all of your saints. Hear us, Lord, as we pray thankfully. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you.